Right. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, let me just do a sound check. Can, can a few people wave at me if you can hear me? That's very good. Well, I'm going to put you in the gallery. I like seeing you all. That's lovely. That's better. I feel like I'm preaching to a congregation when I can see a congregation. Uh, let me just do a quick sound check. Um, Alex Ferguson, wherever you are, I can't see you on the, the gallery, but wherever you are, Alex, the way you play piano takes my heart to places that it does not know how to find on its own. I do hope you realise that. I hope you see that. It is such a gift. So thank you for that this morning. Right. Um, as was ably read for us by all of the gobs simultaneously, we're looking at a passage in the Bible called The Calling of Levi, uh, who's sometimes called Matthew, um, because people in that time had two, had two names. Um, and this is an encounter story. This is my favourite kind of stories in the Bible. It's an encounter story where Jesus encounters somebody. Not only does he encounter that person, but he calls him into discipleship as a consequence. And it's a, it's a result. It's a win for Jesus because Levi does come into discipleship uh, with him. Um, and he's the most unlikely character for Jesus to, to have done that with, which is the nub of the story. is the center piece of the narrative. And we mustn't lose sight of the whole persons that these narratives contain, um, even when they're very short, like this one is. So we can do a couple of things when we read encounter narratives. We can speculate. We're allowed to speculate uh, around what history tells us, but the Bible does not, um, about what's really going on here. Who are these people? What are the forces in their society? What is going on? It's good and right that we do that. We're doubly blessed, though, as Christians, because we're allowed to speculate as to the motivations of the people. The Bible is given to us without a tone of voice. It's given to us without um, footnotes to explain how people speak to each other. We're expected to use the power of imagination, the gift of spiritual imagination, um, to look at that. <clears throat> so so we, we can do that. One of the things we can do when we read a story like, like this kind of Jesus meets somebody story is be careful to debunk um, some baggage that we might find from the days of Sunday school uh, when we read these stories and we tend to oversimplify them. Because if you oversimplify a story like this, you strip the humanity out of it, but you also strip out some of its applicability, some of its relevance. Um, the other thing we can do, because this is a story that involves someone being called, is that we're allowed to look both backwards and forwards. We're allowed to look back to that moment uh, when, whether through generational Christianity or whether or it through conversion, Jesus called us. And we're allowed with a certain trepidation to anticipate when Jesus will call our friends and family into a living faith with him. That's the shape of this story. That's where this story sits in terms of its likely emotional impact when you read it. So if we look at the facts that surround this, um, uh, they are interesting. What we don't want, I don't think, and sometimes the kind of Sunday school version of this makes this so, is we don't want Levi, um, who's a pantomime villain, sitting in his tax collector booth. Suddenly a guy walks in that he's never seen before. The guy says, follow me. Levi has some kind of epileptic fit and decides to follow him. I mean, that, that just doesn't scan. That's not what's happening. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's only the Galilean part. It's the very early part when Jesus is a disciple collector before he gets motoring with some serious things. But even here, Jesus has got powerful things to say. And Levi, unbeknownst to himself, is going to be one of the most powerful, one of the most enduring things that Jesus can ever say to anybody who might be willing to come and follow him. And so we watch it very sharply. We watch it very closely. Levi was a tax collector. It doesn't mean he was working for the Romans. He might have been. 
Um, he might have been working for Herod. He might have been part of the customs and excise. He certainly had a booth on the, on the port there by the sea, uh, which makes me feel that he was more of a kind of customs official than necessarily a lackey for the Romans. But whatever he was, um, he was hated. There's no question about this. Tax collectors are a hated bunch. Um, John the Baptist is preaching earlier in this, in this bit of Luke. Um, and the tax collectors come and they're interested to hear what he say, says. And then they're moved by him. And they say, well, what, what are you saying we should do if we are to repent and be baptized? And he says to them, stop collecting more than you're supposed to. Which gives us an indication, a corroboration in the text that that's what tax collectors did. The Levi was certainly rich. He would have bought the franchise to collect the tax wholesale. He was a venture capitalist of his day. And then he was allowed to recoup um, with a markup. Um, what he'd paid to be able to collect the tax. And of course, the markup is the interesting question as to whether corruption and dishonesty fitted into that. And what we believe is that, that that was the case. And this is the reason why he's hated. He's an unlikely guy is what you've got to get from this. However, the notion that Levi in his network of tax collectors in the Galilean area, we know he had a network because we see them later in the story, they turn up. Um, that he's a wealthy person and is therefore able to dine and, and, and hold conversations and have some leisure, it's unlikely that he's never heard of Jesus. I mean, it's just unlikely that Jesus is a, is a wandering mystic who, who pops up in his life. It's likely that he knew that there was a radical rabbi on the scene who, after his first sermon in a church in Nazareth, they tried to lynch him. It's likely that he knew that this guy had a reputation for being able to drive out demons successfully. It's likely that he knew that this guy was causing a huge amount of trouble with the religious elite because he was offering the forgiveness of sins on his word, on his word. He was saying, you're forgiven. And the religious elite were not best pleased with that because the temple system is where you get forgiven. You don't get forgiven by preachers. And when he was challenged by the religious elite on his authority to do so, he takes a man who is paralyzed and he says, watch this, folks. If this guy can walk as a result of my word, maybe someone can be forgiven as a result of my word. And so you can believe, take your mat, get up and walk. And this is what happened. And everybody's awestruck by this. It's unlikely that these sorts of stories would not have reached the ear of Levi. It's just unlikely that he wouldn't, he wouldn't know that this was going on. And in any case, if we are to accept the way the narrative flows, Levi's booth, his office is on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. So can we speculate that on the day when Jesus holds uh, uh, the sermon from the boats, that Levi could hear him? Can we speculate that Levi witnessed the great furore around the miraculous catch of fish that happens just before his calling? Can we wonder whether he was trying to calculate how much tax so many fish would have to be uh, levied against? Did he see or even overhear the, the conversation between Peter and between Jesus was Peter confesses his sin and Jesus says, don't worry about that, son. From now on, you're going to follow me. Did he notice that Andrew, James, John, Peter, these people are the most unlikely folk to be following a rabbi? And did all that stuff conspire in his mind to create the tinderbox for the point at which the spark of Jesus arrives? And so when Jesus arrives, sparks do fly and something very significant and something very grave is required. And he knows it. And this is the issue. Much of what happens in a calling happens in the place that is unseen. We don't see it. And when people narrate, if I narrate my calling, if you narrate yours, we tend to cut to the chase, to the bit where we accepted Jesus. And we don't talk about the comic tale of all the things that contributed to it. We need to see Levi as a whole person. 
in a whole context. And we need to see that his calling was a process. It was a narrative that he was a part of, that he lived out. And if we want to offer Jesus to other people, that's what we need to see is happening to them too. And, and, and it's important. Calling begins before we see it. Levi proves it. If we carry on slightly debunking some of the more Sunday school aspects of this, of this story, um, then, then we're, in for, we're in for an interesting uh, kind of ride. Because um, how, do we how do we understand the idea that Levi left everything and followed Jesus? You know, if you look at the, the kind of dramatization of this, he kind of pushes the piles of money aside and he, he stomps off into the distance. And yet that is, that is actually not what happened. That isn't what happened. He, he, we don't know that that's the case. It's not in the text. What we do know is that Levi took Jesus to his home. Um, and then they threw a great banquet for him and he invited a load of people. So that doesn't feel like leaving everything and following Jesus. Not at that moment, not at that point. We do understand that Levi became a serious disciple of Jesus. Levi Matthew may even be, may even be the man whose remembrances form the, the basis of the gospel according to Levi Matthew that we have. Um, we know he became a very solid supporter of Jesus. So he did leave everything and follow Jesus, but he didn't do it at that instant. It was part of a of a process. He was found in community and he was part of a narrative. And the thing that he left the most, the most interesting thing that he left was actually his identity before his community um, because he became somebody else. And when he threw this massive banquet, the fact that I have become someone else is what he wanted to announce. When Jesus calls people, he calls whole people and he calls them in the community that they are in to witness to an identity which is in him. This is what's going on. It doesn't matter that he maybe gave up his wealth. It doesn't matter. Some are called to burn their boats and some are called to press their boats into service of the king. But we're all called to leave everything and follow him. This is not a question of material possession. This is a question of spiritual, emotional, psychological and, and practical availability. And Levi isn't, isn't a, a, a kind of great... Um, sort of bastion of, of people surrendering their wealth and becoming poor wandering cynics with a, a bag and a staff. Um, he's something much more complex because he speaks to a context that Jesus wants to speak to. Jesus has chosen this guy at this moment. The other kind of Sunday school myth that's around this is that what Jesus uh, does to Levi is what the conservative evangelical Protestants want him to do to Levi which is to say to him you must repent of your sins and you must believe in me and then you can follow me. Now, unfortunately for the conservative evangelical Protestants, that is not what happens in this story. Repentance is not the offer. Follow me is the offer. And if I'm going to be a wee bit confrontational, those are different offers. Jesus uses the word repent about a dozen times in the Gospel of Luke. And under no circumstances does he ever use it in order to, pre, to, to be the precursor for what someone must do to follow him. He never uses it in conjunction with follow me. He uses it in a lot of ways that were the time I could talk about, but I won't. But the call to repentance is, a, is not what happens here. Repentance only turns up in the story when, when, the, when the, these invading elements come in and start criticizing what is happening. And Jesus has to say to them, no, you don't get this. I'm, look, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. And I'm here to call sinners to repentance. He has the repentance element drawn out of him as an, because he's being opposed. It's not what he offers to Levi nor can it therefore be what we offer to the other when we want to give them the whole of Christ. It's not what is offered. What is offered is follow me. Repent and believe is an exclusivity. It excludes you. 
come, follow me, is an inclusion. And the thing that's staggering about this story is why would Jesus be so inclusive? It is inclusivity, which is his message, not repentance. It's not that it doesn't come up. It does come up. And it's not that it wouldn't come up in Levi's life. It does come up in Levi's life. It comes up in all the disciples' lives. But it's not the focus. It's not what is happening here. Levi is being invited into an association with Jesus, which has no conditions set on it. And this, this is the reason, this is the reason why we see this amazing outpouring of, of, of demonstration from Levi when it happens. So Jesus uh, calls Levi, but Levi doesn't go to Jesus' house. Jesus comes to Levi's house. Jesus calls Levi to be part of his thing, but Levi introduces Jesus to his people, not the other way around. Jesus calls Levi to be part of something, but it's Levi who puts on the dinner. It's Levi who spreads the table. And Luke has got a particular thing in mind when he, when he points this out. Matthew and Mark just said Jesus was at dinner with Levi. It's kind of low key, just having a bite of lunch. Luke doesn't say that. Luke says, here we have Jesus being invited to a great banquet and many tax collectors and sinners are collected there. Luke knows what Jesus' imagery is like. Luke understands the idea that Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is a banquet to which you're going to be invited. Many are invited. Um, some are even compelled. Some don't want it, and that's what they'll get. Jesus teaches this banquet is the, is the quintessence of the vindication of God. You need to be at that party. When Jesus is questioned just after our passage about why there's no fasting in his following, he says, don't be ridiculous. The, the, the guests of a bridegroom can't fast when the bridegroom is with them. This is a time for feasting. This is a time for, for partying because he wants to signal the new world order. And the new world order is simply this, that when you are invited to, call to, the, to the call of Jesus, you will find yourself at a table. And the table has a name, and the name of the table is love. Jesus teaches of the great feast. Um, Song of Songs talks about, he brought me to his banqueting table, and his banner over me is love. Even the normally doer, Psalm 23 says, you lay a table before me, a banquet spread before me in the presence of my enemies. And Jesus is channeling this because what has happened is this sinner has been called to join him and immediately a table has been laid. And it's been laid in the presence of the enemies because right on cue, they turn up. Up comes the enemy and says, you need to stop this. We don't like this. This is, this is not fitting and appropriate behavior. This is not how, this is an abhorrent to us. This is not how the kingdom of God works. You can't be go on, going on and doing what you are doing. And Jesus is very short with these people because he, say, he says, look, you just don't get this. This is not about you. You need to go away. It's not a healthy doctrine. If you think yourself healthy, then go away because I'm here to call sinners to repentance. The kingdom of God looks like this. The kingdom of God involves these people, not your people. The kingdom of God is an inclusion. It's not an exclusion. The kingdom of God is not about who has to do what to be right. The kingdom of God is about who loves who. And I am here in your midst loving you. If you can't see that, if you have no sensibility for that, then you're always going to be these people chasing around the marketplace saying, oh, we played the flute and you wouldn't dance. John the Baptist never took a glass of wine and he ate locusts, apparently, and you said he had a demon. 
Whereas here I come, glass of wine, bite of dinner, and I'm a glutton, and I'm a drunkard, and I'm a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But let me tell you, this is Jesus. Wisdom is proved right by all her children. And these are they. These are wisdom's children. It's about love. It's about fellowship first and questions later. This is what's happening, and this is why we get this powerhouse story of Levi and Jesus calling a curse before we see it. Whole persons are called in whole communities to be relevant to a whole life prospectus. And when you come to Jesus, you can only come to one venue. You have to come to his table, not to his church. And that, and that becomes kind of fascinating because we could say that there are implications in this story for the life of the church. If calling happens before we see it, then the church must always maintain an authentic witness. We should not be embarrassed about ourselves. We want repent and believe to be over the building. We want people to understand they need to be saved from their sins. We want people to understand that to give up your life, follow Jesus, take up your cross and follow him. These things are essential. These things are not negotiable. We can't liberalize them away. But they're not the center of the argument. The center of the argument is the reason why you would do that. Jesus takes the affront of, of loving Levi and he takes the impact on his reputation from so doing. You are the reputation of who you love. And Jesus says, I choose to love him. And he gets called a glutton and a drunkard because of it. And he doesn't mind. He's not ashamed of his association with Levi. Levi calls, Jesus calls someone like me. And there's a twist of our, twist of our culture and a, a serious head game that we play to suggest that there's any idea that I should be embarrassed to be a Christian. Jesus should be embarrassed to know me. And he is not. And he is not. Further to that, deeper to that, bolder and bigger and better and greater than that is the idea that when the books are opened, however that will be, and when all the filth in my life is exposed for all to see, and maybe no one can like me, Jesus promises me I will not be ashamed of you. This is the gospel. And he's living it out right here in front of the, the people by, the, by accepting all that Levi is, everything that Levi is, and his friends too. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what he, want, what he wants to show. So the church must mean an authentic witness and it must keep it that way. But if, if, if Jesus calls whole persons in whole communities, then it's incumbent upon the church to be the most authentic kind of community it can possibly be. And we have a slight case to answer there. There are many things that we do in our, our churches that are very pro-community. They're very conducive to seeing how love will flow between us. But there are many things we do that are less so. And in the balance of deciding what kind of church we want to be, maybe we need to take stock and work out which of these spreads the feast of love and which of these does less so. We need to become famous. We need to become magnetic to people because of what it is that we do, because of the kind of community that we, we flourish under. And in today's post-modern, post-individual, post-Christian, just, you know, the society where people lock themselves inside of their wealth and hide away from the necessity for spiritual realities, we need to be a community that is, that is uh, celebrating feasts like, like the Feast of Levi, so that people are attracted to us. If to accept the call of Jesus is to call to accept the call to go to the table whose name is love, then the church must understand something. 
when it is in doubt. When you're in doubt, associate. When you're in doubt, validate. When you're in doubt, accept. When you're in doubt, love. Love first and ask questions later. This is the very template of our saviour. This is what he does. This is how he gets criticised. We must become the glutton and the drunkard church. We must not care for our reputation, given who we want to love, given why we want to love them, and given the offer that we want to make. We must become a love like his. We must spread his table. He has brought me to his banqueting table and his banner over me is love. The church can be described in many ways, but it's only defined by one thing. It's defined by love. The story of Levi gives us all the evidence we need for how we must behave. The story of Levi gives us all the tools we need. When a calling happens before we see it, when whole persons are drawn into whole community, and when the table that they are invited to is the table of love, sparks will fly. Amen.